Warren Peterson leads an Arizona state Senate that has been aggressive in pursuing its policy goals and in many cases, defying Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs. A third-generation resident of Gilbert, Arizona, Peterson was first elected to the legislature in 2012 and has served in both the House, where he was the majority leader, and now in the Senate. As Senate president, Peterson, along with his Republican counterparts in the House, brokered a state budget deal with Governor Hobbs, as well as a compromise agreement on a regional transportation plan that gave everyone some claim to victory. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. Each week, we dissect our state's political news to help you understand what your lawmakers are up to. I'm Mary Jo Pitzel, and I cover the state legislature and policy for the Republic. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics. Today, we're joined by Senator Warren Peterson to talk about working in the rare state of divided government in Arizona and what lies ahead in 2024. Senator Peterson, welcome to The Gaggle. Thanks for having me. Well, it wasn't business as usual at the Capitol this year since Arizona had its first instance of divided government in, what, 14 years, I believe, with a Republican-controlled legislature, a Democratic governor. Can you recap some of the highlights and some of the lowlights of that year? Yeah. Like you, I didn't know what to expect, but I was very, very pleased with how the session went. I thought we put together a majority plan and we delivered everything from our majority plan we put on the governor's desk and she signed, you know, most of it, a lot of it. And so outside of a lot of the election integrity stuff, we really, we had a lot of success. So it, it was a very good session. I think some of the highlights, the really big things that we did and inflation relief was a big deal, big part of what we were trying to do. And we had the family tax rebate that we passed. We also passed the rental tax cut to help tenants, the budget. We passed a budget, had every single Republican on it. We had a process where every single person had an opportunity to voice and be a part of the budget and also like an equal voice. It was the first budget I've been a part of. I've been there since 2012. And uh, most of the time I've been there, I've been a part of the budget process, close to it. But then, of course, always as a member voting on the budget, either yes or no. But it was the first year where... It wasn't like everyone was exhausted or wrangled into it. You know, we were deliberate. We put it all together. There was no high pressure selling. It was really just, here's the rules. Members agreed to the rules. And then we all played by the rules and we, we put together a budget. And it's the fastest budget delivered in the history of Arizona. So it was a very, um, that was a huge success. Education spending, we put another $580 million into education. Water, we did a lot of water projects, Prop 400. Um, we worked on that. It had been worked on the prior session, and we worked the entire session. And Prop 400 being a transportation? The transportation plan. It was really probably, it was one of the biggest reasons why we had the delay for signing die. We, like I said, we got the budget done quickly, but then there was a um, kind of a delay period and not much happening except we were working on on Prop 400, a couple of governor nominations. So we passed the most conservative transportation plan in the history of Arizona's 
more focused on roads and highways and less on the transit package, although there's plenty of transit in there. Um, we had the dyno committee making sure we're deliberate about who the nominees are. And then we were very effective as far as involved in litigation. If the attorney general refused to defend the laws that we've been passing over the last few years, we've intervened and participated in that. So I felt like we had a, I was surprised. I didn't know what to expect, but it ended very well, I think, for the Republican caucus and, and for Arizona. Any lowlights? Um, you know, um, it just really exceeded my expectations. Um, I, uh, when I first, uh, when I was first elected as the Senate president, we still didn't know the results and I thought we were going to have a Republican governor. So when I found out we were going to have a Democrat governor, I was like, oh no, how's this going to go? One of my focuses, one of the reasons why I ran for president was I really wanted to focus on decorum process the institution is very important to me. And I felt like we did exceptionally well at that. I mean, if you go back and look at the session, we never had any members of my caucus attack each other publicly, which I was very, you know, that doesn't, you know, you'll always have some of that. We didn't have any of that. And I just thought overall, we raised the bar as far as decorum goes. I was very happy about that. You mentioned your surprise or at least change of plans as it relates to the governor. What has your relationship been like with Governor Katie Hobbs. Tell us how much you have talked directly, how much of it is through staff level interactions. Sure. Uh, how do you characterize that relationship? I would characterize it as, you know, respectful relationship, open communication. I feel like every time she's requested a meeting, I've met with her. Every time I've requested a meeting, she's met with me. When it came to the budget, we met with each other three times a week for you know, I, oh my gosh, it must have been two months. I mean, we met a lot. So we had a lot of interaction. I would just say, obviously, we're like diametrically opposed as far as uh, a lot of the things ideologically were diametrically opposed in many ways. But when it came to us, I thought she was very reasonable as far as us when we worked on the budget. It's the thing we have to pass. You know, it's the only constitutional thing we have to do while we're down there. It's, it's the most important thing we do as a legislature. I thought we were able to sit down early and just kind of lay out a framework of here's how we can work together and by these rules. And as long as we can work together under these rules and we both agree to it, then we can do this. We can get this done. And so uh, she agreed to that. We agreed to that. And um, so I think that's why we were effective. If you look at the results, I think our budget, we, we even cut a little spending. I mean, it was a, it was a conservative budget, but it wasn't a necessarily, it didn't have like far right policy in it, but it was conservative and um, it didn't have far left policy in it. And those were kind of the guardrails we were working under. So we were able to get her priorities on there that were bipartisan. We were able to get our priorities in there that were bipartisan. And uh, I think it was a success for Arizona. Well, as we taped this, You've been talking about negotiations with Governor Hobbs over the whole, whole director nomination process. Mm -hmm. Where does that stand right now? Because the process changed from what we have seen at the legislature in prior years, where nominees were submitted to specific committees of reference. This mm -hmm. time it's all been uh, centered on one committee. Where does that stand? Because we have seen 
very few of her nominees actually get confirmed to being an agency director. Yeah, so we actually, of the 10 we considered, we approved most of them. We approved seven of the 10 that we had done before she had withdrawn the other ones. So up to the point of withdrawal, and we were actually preparing, part of the reasons we had stayed in was I wanted to get some more of the nominees done before the end of the session. But I think this is a very important change that we have made. And it's an upgrade, really. The directors, they play such an important role um, in the state. They affect business. They affect our freedom. They affect so many things. We saw what a health director could do under COVID. We know what how these directors can affect people's lives. And so we wanted to make sure that we're really vetting these people. And I think citizens actually expect that from government. <laughs> they, want, they want us to vet the people. And so I've really just had um, my kind of criteria that I've just laid before, let the governor know is that, look, if you, if you give us somebody who's hyper-partisan or not incompetent, like they don't know anything about this industry, they're, it's not going to happen. That's, they're not going to get appointed. If they're nonpartisan and they're competent, it'll happen. But if they're like super political, you know, and I think that as we got going, I think she, she realized that. And if you see some of the later appointments, I mean, I think some of her later appointments were, they're not going to have any, any problem. And when we go in, back into session, those won't have a problem getting confirmed. Where are we at in the process? We've been having discussions. I think we're going to work it out. Um, I think we'll have a solution. I'm gonna, I'll actually let her, I'll, I'll let the governor's office share their perspective on it, but I feel like we're going to come to a solution. It's the same, though, as before. If, if we don't, for some reason, come to a solution, then, then obviously we're going have to have to go to the courts. But I think this has been a good process. We can always make it better. We can always improve. But overall, I think it's important to vet these people because these people really affect Arizonans in their lives. What are the priorities for the Republican caucus in the new year? And how do you connect that to what happened this first go round with Governor Hobbs? Sure. So we've actually met with our caucus and we're going to be doing a, a press conference to share our majority plan. But I'll share with you some of the things that have come back from our caucuses, some of the things that we're going to be focusing on this session. Some of these you may have already heard of. So first of all, last session, inflation relief was huge. I think that's top of mind for everyone in the country right now. Unfortunately, Congress has been spending so much money that they haven't really received. We're printing and spending, and, and that has been a big cause of inflation. So we're going to keep focusing on inflation relief, and we particularly want to focus on teachers this session. They've been hit super hard by inflation, just like everybody else. But of course, you know, we have a role to play with that. And so we're going to be introducing a 7% teacher pay raise, unlike prior efforts where we allowed school boards to decide how much money goes to teachers. This will be dedicated solely to teachers. It can only go to teacher pay. So we're going to ensure that, unlike last time, all of this money goes to the teachers. It's estimated to take our teachers to above the national average. So that should make us more competitive, help us with the teacher shortage. Obviously, there's lots of factors to the teacher shortage, but pay is common sense. It's the most important factor. We're going to 
focus on a fiscally conservative budget. Thank goodness we did the budget the way we did last time. We were able to, there were some efforts to try to like increase ongoing spending. We actually reduced it a little bit. So now if you look at Arizona versus a state like California, we have a 5% deficit. California has a 30% deficit. <laughs> and unlike the federal government, California and Arizona, we have to balance our budgets. So one thing that will not happen, though, is we're not going to touch our rainy day fund. I mean, if, if anything, this is, we're not, it's not really, we can handle a 5% deficit. It's actually healthy for government to make a cut. And over the last 10 years, if you looked at what we've done, we've basically doubled our budget. Um, if I went to any bu business owner and said, hey, over the next, I'm going to make a deal with you. Over the next 10 years, I'm going to allow you to double your budget. But on the 11th year, I want you to cut it back 5%. Pretty sure all of those businesses would be okay with that. Um, water, we've got a lot of common sense proposals for water. You know, we'll keep conserving, and I can talk a lot about that, but it allows to grow. Uh, housing crisis, work on increasing supply. That's really the problem. There's a shortage of, of houses. Um, there'll be an effort to focus on homelessness. We're going to focus on public safety, of course, the border, crime. We're going to continue to be a check and balance on the governor. I think it's something that the public, especially that kind of middle of the road, your more moderate voters, the people that decide a lot of the elections, I, I would imagine they would appreciate the fact that they haven't seen, you know, this hyperpartisan one end to the other, either on one side or the other. So, but we'll continue to be that check on the other side of things on her as she has been, uh, you know, of course, a check as well. Senator, can I uh, break in for a second? Sure. You mentioned crime, for example, and border. What yeah. specifically does that mean for you all? What role, for example, can the state play in border security or, or border enforcement? And uh, same thing on crime. What what role is appropriate for the state? And, and where do you see yourself sure. heading? Well, I think crime is uh, public safety is one of government's number one roles. And it's one of the most important things that it does is what kind of separates, has separated the United States from many countries where the government doesn't have the power or doesn't make the focus to protect its citizens from crime. We're seeing nothing like what you've seen in the blue states where you literally have stores shutting down because of retail theft, out of control retail theft, and a government that's not willing to prosecute those people. But we are still seeing, you know, retail theft has increased. So we need to look at ways to make sure that really just a tough on crime philosophy. I mean, these people talk. I was recently at an event and they said that these organized groups that will intentionally just steal X amount in each county because they know that will keep them under the felony threshold. That's why it's so important to pass laws that are tough because they know what the laws are and it's a deterrent. So we're actually in pretty good shape. We've done pretty well. Arizona has been pretty tough on crime. So some of this is defense. You know, we kill some of these Republicans are killing some of these soft on crime bills that we're seeing from Democrats. But it's also offense. We want to make sure that law enforcement has the tools it needs to to crack down on retail theft and and any you know other crimes as well. As far as the border goes, um, we've actually have a lot of money that we have 
put into a border fund over the last several years. So I don't know that we will, I'm sure we'll definitely want to protect that. I just heard of an initiative that Governor Hobbs did earlier. I don't have all the details with me, but it actually sounds like she was doing some reasonable things and um, sending a bill to President Biden and uh, for $500 million or something like that. I don't know if you guys are aware of that or if you've seen No, that happens every time there's divided government. Yeah, are you holding Arizona. your breath? That's my question. <laughs> my follow-up. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, you know, she's her action, what I saw was a good border action. And ultimately, of course, the federal government you know, controls the border. But there are lots of things that we can do. We work closely with the sheriffs along the border and we say, what are the resources? What are the things you can do? And of course, we have the National Guard. Now, that's something the governor, you know, we can't force the National Guard, but working with the governor to send the National Guard, it sounds like that's part of her proposal I saw this morning is, is having the National Guard help um, with what happened at Lukeville, the disaster that happened down there. So it's really us coordinating with you know, continuing to do what we do, making sure that we have resources for border support, National Guard, working with the sheriffs, and making sure we have crimes and felonies and prosecutions that will deter some of these illegal activities. I wanted to circle back on the budget. You mentioned a 5% deficit. I think the latest figure I saw was about $400 million for the coming year. But Arizona spent all of its $2.5 billion surplus. Could a deficit have been avoided if you hadn't spent all that money this year? And how do you react to talk about maybe clawing back some of those projects that the budget surplus was paying for? Yeah. So, I mean, as far as that goes, in a way, we did um, save money. I mean, as I mentioned, we lowered the ongoing spending. We pretty much took just one-time money. That's what was allowed to be spent. And if you go back to the history of founding of Arizona and you look at the number of budgets, all the budgets, how many of those budgets do you think were left with nothing spent? You know, everything gets appropriated. So we actually, we have been very fiscally responsible. We'd have a $1 billion rainy day fund that we've put money into. We did tax cuts. That was giving money back to the citizens. So we're actually in a great place. What we need to do is we need to look at discretionary spending. You know, what's discretionary? And part of that is, yeah, it's some of the things we've added, but it's it's more than that. We need to look at government as a whole, what's not formulaic, and we need to look at, okay, we've got the, this amount that needs to be cut. Um, and it's kind of a zero-based budget, really, is what is the way I'm seeing it, how we need to look at it. We need to just say X amount is on the table, X amount needs to be cut. We need to, you know, build it up and or here's what your priorities are and whatever's left, some of those areas are going to be looking at cuts. Again, we're at 5%, California's at 30%. Everybody is facing a downturn from what I've seen so far. If you guys are aware of states that have large surpluses this year, you know, please correct me, but from what I see, we're looking at softer revenues across the board. And Arizona has actually done pretty well. Had we done a lot of ongoing spending, we'd be looking at, you know, closer to California than rather the de minimis amount that we're at right now. What do you think might get cut? Um, I don't know. The way I see it is the process will be similar to last time where we're going to need to get everybody's input. 
and people are going to have to look at, uh, we're going to have to take everyone's input on that, on what's the highest priority to the lowest priority, and but something does have to be cut. So We'll see another budget in May? N- no, I think you'll see a budget in late January, early February. Oh, <laughs> that's a big scoop. That's my goal. <laughs> I mean, I think you will. There's no reason. I mean, look, here's how budgets have normally historically worked. And, and this is what I'm hoping changes forever. And maybe the way we did it last time and this time, we're going to do it again this way, where everyone has input and an equal input. And when you do that, we were able to put our budgets together within seven to 10 days because people, when they have their own thing that they can control, they can make up their mind quickly. What doesn't work, what takes a long time and a lot of wrangling is how the process used to be. And the process used to be this. You used to have six people deciding how all the money was spent. And then they try to convince 16 and 31 to come along with them. Well, how's that a good idea? And, you know, some people have kind of chided, oh, well, you gave everybody a little bit of money. It's like, okay, well, it used to be six people had all the money. So what's like, what's better? Is it better to have everybody have a little piece of the pie? Or is it better to just have six people control everything and then try to convince and wrangle everybody else? So, and it's been really good too, because it's forced people to see reality. Because let me ask you guys a question. If I go to two people and I say, how do you want to spend the money? Well, you get one person who spends it all and then you get the next person that spends it all. Well, you're only at two legislators so far and they're spending on different things. So, I mean, anyways, it's just good because as we've kind of shrunk it down to saying, okay, legislator, you have this much, you all have the equal amount, Democrats too, governor too, you quickly see, oh, wow, I can't spend a billion dollars unless I get X amount of people to also use their money or their share to spend a billion dollars. And it kind of, it really exposes, I guess, a big spender. And if you have two or three big spenders, it really just kind of shows like there's not enough money for the three big spenders if they all had their way. But what there is enough money for is there's enough money if everybody has X amount of money and then they can convince other people to donate or, you know, to contribute their portion, there is enough money for that. Because if that adds up, it's just math. It adds up to the total. You mentioned 16 and 31. One significant component of the Republican majority seems to be the Freedom Caucus. They are one of the more potent forces in the legislature. How many members of the Senate Republican Caucus belong to the Freedom Caucus? And are you one of them? Yeah, so I don't, I, I think there's three. But I don't see it that way. I mean, you could also say there's a rural caucus and there's a Hispanic Latino caucus. I see them as all part of my caucus. There's three of them that are part of my caucus, but then there's also the rest of my caucus. What we have done is we have, we met every single week last session. We would meet and we would go through everything. And I've been down there since, like I said, since 2012. I've never been part of a more united caucus as as we have right now. There are people that have different interests and are part of different caucuses, but I don't see them as they're certainly not an enemy, but they're certainly not they just have an equal voice, you know. So, so you're saying there's just three members? There's three members the, in the, the Senate Freedom. of the Freedom Caucus that I'm aware of. Cuz when they have 
news conferences, it seems like there's a lot more people. I think that's the there. House. So the House has. So you have three in the Senate, and then I'm not sure how many are in the House. So you're not one of them? I'm not a member of the Freedom Caucus. I, I, I didn't see that. I mean, I agree with much of what they do, just like I agree with a lot of much of what the other caucuses are doing as well. But I didn't, I have not put myself in any caucus because I'm not just, I'm the president of, you know, our majority leader. I think he could be maybe a member of a caucus, but even that might be too fracturing. But I'm the president of the whole Senate. I'm not just the president of the Republicans. I'm also the president of the Democrats. And I also just really want to focus on caucus unity. And I felt like if I were to join that caucus or any other caucus, that that could fracture my caucus. I make sure their voice is heard. I make sure everyone else's voice is heard. Um, maybe it's because I'm a middle child, and so I learned this young. But I like to just bring everybody into the room, and I think we've done a really good job of this. And we take – you have your member that's on the far left of the caucus. You have your member that's on the far right of the caucus. And you say, what consensus can we build to get all of us on the same page? And we did that the whole session, and we did it over and over and over again, and it worked out really well. You recently questioned why Arizona has a 100-year standard for assured water supplies. What's the point that you were trying to make with raising yeah. that? And, glad, and should we that. expect the legislation no, to undo it? <laughs> no. It's amazing. I was literally at this lunch. This is Howie Fisher, so I hope Howie listens to this. Howie thinks he gets to decide what you mean and what your intent is. And it drives me crazy because I even, once I saw him come up to me afterwards, I'm like, Howie, don't you dare make it sound like I want to get rid of, you know, the 100-year water supply. And of course he did. But I actually talked about all of our legislative priorities. And I went, I mean, that was a little blip. And out of that whole meeting, he didn't even talk about my legislative priorities because we have nothing that's going to deal with eliminating the 100-year water supply. My point was this. It's an arbitrary number. Why is it 100 years? Why isn't it 105 years? Why isn't it 95 years? California's is 25 years. Okay. And why is it only housing has it? Why doesn't commercial have it? Why isn't industrial? Why doesn't ag have it? If you look at a piece of the pie, so I'm drawing here, the, the gaggle listeners have to imagine, you know, this right here, that's housing. I mean, you could eliminate housing. It's not going to solve the water problem. So it's really just I'm trying. what I've tried to do was educate and let people know. Like your common citizen would not realize this. Your common citizen is going to think it's the opposite, right? They're going to think almost everything is being used on housing. They're not going to realize this small little sliver is, is housing. So that's what I was trying to do. And I was trying to also point out the fact of how we just keep piling on housing when it's completely regulated, meanwhile, you'll have like a semiconductor unit using millions of gallons a day with zero regulation. You have a farm with zero regulation. You'll have industry with zero regulation. And guess what? That's actually what's using 82% of the water. <laughs> so I was trying to raise the awareness. Now, I was mentioning the 100-year in the context of this. There was modeling done that showed there were some areas where we only had a 96-year supply instead of the instead of hitting that 100 years. And I was just saying how, oh, well, if we would have had a 95-year supply or a 25-year supply requirement like California, nobody would be talking about how Arizona is out of water. 
The reality is this, I trust the water experts. I know a water expert in the East Valley and I trust them. There's plenty of water for housing and there's water for growth too. We do have that. There's areas where there's lots of water. There's areas where there's a little bit of water and we can do transfers and there's things that we can be smart with where we can do this, but it's not smart for us to say Arizona's out of water. And if you can't tell me why it's 100 years, well, then it's arbitrary. So you haven't had an answer to those questions. Nobody nobody can mm-hmm. tell me why it's 100 years. Because, again, and I was just saying, well, somebody give me a reason. Because you don't go to the gas station and buy 100 years of gas. You don't go to the grocery store and buy 100 years of food. And so obviously that needs to be replenished. So that's the question. You do, you do need to have a certificate or a supply limit that can reasonably be replenished, Okay. <laughs> If you imagine every t- house has a 100-year tank under the house, the question here is, is that the right amount? What is the reasonable amount for that to be? Well, California determined 25 years. So that's all I was saying. And also on that modeling, by the way, they didn't consider a bunch of things. Like they didn't consider affluent water. If they would have considered you know, the reuse of water, well, that would have bumped you over 100 right there too. The modeling is bad. And unfortunately, when when the governor's office comes out and says, oh, we're going to shut down, you know, ADWR, we're going to shut down these two areas because we don't have enough water. And it's built on this arbitrary number and some bad modeling. Well, yeah, I'm going to take some issue with that. We have no plans to change the water supply number or anything like that. But my point to you was, why is it 100 years? And it is, unless somebody can tell me exactly why it's 100, like, give me the, like, Show me a model data. Okay, you have to have 100 years. Otherwise, at some point, you're going to run out. Somebody needs to give me that or, or it is an arbitrary number. So, Because right now, if you look at the state as a whole, we do have areas that have way more than 100 years, way more. Well, those areas could be shifted to, you know, you could do canals or water transfers or, you know, and what about industrial? What about commercial? What about ag? Can we do things to encourage them? I mean, if you take a farm, a lot of times just one farm is using the same amount of water as like a small city. Okay. So <laughs> if you're converting farmland to housing, that should be something where you're not saying, okay, we're going to shut down housing if you're actually going to reduce the amount of water usage here. So anyways, that's where that, that puts things more in context, hopefully for you. If I can just have you hover over that for one more moment. You've talked about questioning the rationale for those things. You've also identified some of the larger users of water in Arizona. Do you have any plans that you would like to see pursued as it relates to things like agricultural use? This can be prohibitions. It can be incentives, things like that. Is there anything that you think would put Arizona on a better footing as it relates to water policy moving forward? Yeah, what I would say is we have Senator Kerr in the Senate who works a lot on water, and we have Senator Griffin in the House who works on a lot on water, and she has a list. She's working on a bill right now, and the way I see it is it shares her ideas, conservation and growth. They don't hurt anybody, but they allow us to grow. One of those was that you know we need to look at We've got these active areas where we control water. Well, 80% of the state is not in these active management areas. Well, 
if we start looking at an active management area and they know we are, a lot of these farmers know that's coming. So what a lot of them have been doing has been, they've been increasing their water use or even some people are wasting water use because they want to be able to keep that historical water. So what can we do to encourage them to not waste water, but let them know that they can retain their water? And she has, she's working on something for that. Um, another thing is TSMC, uh, like these large semi, they're, they're big water users, some of these big, big water users. Now, kudos to them. Voluntarily, they put together a really good recycling program. So they recycle, I think, 70%. I don't know if you guys know the number. I want to say 70%. Um, fact, fact check me on that. Actually, we did. And he was close, but not completely correct. The Taiwanese semiconductor plant recycles up to 90% of the water, according to the Greater Phoenix Economic Council. But we need to look at that. I think that's a reasonable regulation. If you're a highly intensive water user and lar large business, that you should be required to recycle X amount of water or at least in years whenever the governor declared, and maybe that's the, the way to do it. I don't like to do anything forever, but if we're in a drought, then these regulations, and that, that could be one of them. So again, I would refer you to Senator Kerr. She's been working on it, um, and she has a, just a whole list of, of ideas. And, but I, I certainly don't think the, that we should be saying that we're, we're out of water, especially for housing. When you look at housing, um, we are using the same water today with 7.5 million people that we were using with 1.5 million people. I mean, that just shows you that, okay, that space is doing it right. It's regulated properly. It can grow. In fact, when that pie grows, water usage goes down. So we're almost like doing things the opposite way. Like, okay, let's shrink the, the housing pie and increase Okay, we're like going the wrong direction here. So, but I'm, I, th I do think we, that there are reasonable regulations we can put on. Ag needs to come to the table. And I think they will now because they're seeing it. Um, but ag needs to come to the table too. What can be done to encourage, you know, the agricultural industry to conserve? And I won't necessarily go into those ideas. I want Senator, Senator Kerr should, they're going to, it's going to be her bill. So I would rather her really drill down on that. The Arizona Attorney General's office is probing the party-sanctioned fake electors in coordination with former President Donald Trump's allies. The Washington Post has reported that that investigation involves the pressure campaign that was exerted on others, notably the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and members of the state legislature. Can you discuss any of the conversations, any of the interactions that you had with the president's campaign, his legal team, any of the folks who were associated with his efforts in that period? Um, sure. I, did, I mean, I didn't have any. I, I think there was a, in fact, I, I had been requested any communications and I had a meeting once with Rudy Giuliani um, and that was it. There was a discussion. This has been a while. When was this? I mean, this has been a while. 2020 into 2021. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right at the end of there. So, um, yeah, we're talking, it's, it's, been, it's been years. But I do remember, it seems like I was approached about the idea of the electors, and that just didn't make sense to me. <laughs> and so I didn't, I wasn't, I had no interest in that. So. And that was before it happened? Yeah. 
Do you recall who approached you on that? Was that Rudy's conversation or? No, no, no. I think it was, um, it may have been another, I don't even remember. It may have been another legislator. I, I probably got a phone, I think I probably got a phone call about it. And I just, when they asked me about it, I just said, you know, that just doesn't, that just doesn't sound, that doesn't pass the gut test for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I think that was about it. Um, so anyways. As you've mentioned, you've been at the legislature since 2012, but midway through that, you enrolled in law college and went to the yeah. Sandra Day O'Connor Law College. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know. And I was the majority leader. And, well, and yeah, so you had lots of duties at the Capitol. But what did getting a JD, how has that influenced how you look at the law and the kind of work that the legislature does? You know, more than anything, it reminds me why it's uh, how much we really are separate branches. <laughs> the law, you know, it is good for us to have your rank and file citizens and a broad spectrum of them. I think that's a good thing. Law school was good in a sense that obviously, to me, just the amount of case law you study and just the, it's really history and culture. And and so it really just um, opened your eyes to just kind of the transformation of, you know, jurisprudence from the beginning until where we are now. And it was good. It also makes you, um, it kind of forces you to like back things up. We love as legislators to just say stuff. <laughs> and, and law school kind of made me say, you know, I need to make sure everything I say, I better be prepared to have, which is why I go to the thing with the hundred year water supply. It's like somebody back this up for me. Somebody give me a model um, and tell me why it's hundred years. To me, it just seems like somebody just said, oh, hundred, like a hundred years. That just sounds good. Anyways, but I, th I think it, it helped me with that. It helped me like, you got to back stuff up. I didn't come out of there thinking more legislators should be, should be attorneys. So, well, Senator Peterson, thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts uh, with the gaggle. If people want to follow your work on social media, where can they find you? Um, I have a Twitter so they can follow me. I believe it's at Vote Warren. That is it for this week, gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about today's episode or topics that you'd like us to cover on the show? Well, send us a message at 602-444-0804 or a voice memo to the gaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's all one word, all spelled out. This episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. Script writing and research by Mary Jo Pitzel and me, with additional help by Kaylee. Amanda Liberto provided further audio oversight. News direction for the gaggle comes from Kathy Tulamello. And our music comes from Universal Production Music. Never miss an episode of the gaggle by subscribing to us wherever you listen. If you learned something new today, be sure to share this episode with a friend. You can also leave us a review and please rate us five stars. You can follow the gaggle on social media at ACC Podcasts. And you can follow me at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. And you can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. The Gaggle is an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com production. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>